The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in June 2008. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today's guest made his New York theater debut 30 years ago in Spring Awakening. Not that Spring Awakening, a version of the original 1891 Spring Awakening before it became a musical. Since then, he has done The Heidi Chronicles, for which he won the Tony Award as Best Featured Actor in a Play. She Loves Me, for which he won the Tony Award as Best Actor in a Musical. Company, Contact, for which he won the Tony as Best Featured Actor in a Musical. Twelve Angry Men, Journey's End, for which he was nominated as Best Actor in a Play. Pygmalion, and now Gypsy, again a Tony Award as Best Featured Actor in a Musical. We welcome Boyd Gaines. Hi, Boyd. Hi, John. Hi, Howard. Nice to see you both. Well, Gypsy, currently on Broadway. The journey to Gypsy began over a year ago when it uh, started at City Center Encores. You were in a play at that point. The play ended even Journey's End. Journey's End ended on a Sunday performance. Tony Award that night for the show. The next morning you started rehearsals on Gypsy. (laughs) It was a a rude awakening, to to be sure, after uh, we... Uh, it was also the uh, the closing performance was also uh, uh, the day of the Puerto Rican Day Parade, uh, and on the Belasco's on Forty Fourth Street behind us on Forty Fifth Street. There's an unobstructed uh, uh, passageway between Forty Fifth and the back of the Belasco, and on a flatbed truck, a salsa band played for the entire first act. We we were screaming just to get the. To get the the lines out, it was as if the Germans were using psychological warfare in the trenches. All those German salsa bands, exactly, exactly. Well, you know, all the uh, and uh, you know the the greater the later uh, German influx into South America, the Caribbean, and Mexico, <laughs> Central America. Um, uh, uh, they did stop at the intermission anyway, and and of course, who, I remember Vanessa Redgrave was there to support us in our last performance that we literally closed the play ran jumped in the shower put tuxes on ran to the tonys did the tonys and then ran to our uh, closing night party uh stark sands who was uh, playing raleigh left the next flew out early that next morning to to go to africa to start a uh, an hbo miniseries that i guess airs later uh anyway it was a it was a whirlwind and then 10 the next morning there i was at a read-through with arthur lawrence and stephen sondheim and i understand you were originally reluctant to play the role of herbie you didn't see yourself in that role well i think a lot of it had to do i didn't really know the piece very well i'd only seen it once a long long time ago and a very good friend of mine played herbie and played him very well indeed um and uh, he just uh, the other friends of mine who'd either played Herbie or auditioned for Herbie uh, seemed so very different uh, uh, from me that I I just thought, oh, I, I, are you really sure? I, I read it, and then I, I still still had some doubts. And so Arthur uh, asked me to meet with him, and I went down and uh, uh, sat with him, and he talked me through what he thought the arc of the character was who the character was what was important to him what he wanted and and uh, and how the play, how the role functioned in the play and that just made very good sense to me and i and uh, uh, i had such a good chat with arthur that i was then from really from that moment on very enthused about doing it and uh, and you know i've had a 
fantastic time. Well, you're talking about Arthur Lawrence, who not only directed the show, but also wrote it. Wrote it, yes. What, what did he say that really convinced you that you could be Herbie? Well, I think he he talked very much in actor terms about what the character wants. Uh, the character really wants a, a family, um, uh, really loves Rose, is incredibly attracted to her. He, 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 he immediately said, I think they have a great sex life. Um, and uh, that he's a person who holds out for the most positive and that, that he keeps trying to make everything work out until it becomes all too clear that it's not going to. And the fact that Patti LuPone was going to be playing Rose, did that have anything to do with your decision? It, it did indeed. <laughs> I had done um, a, a, a gala of Anything Goes. We, we we actually did it without scripts and no no set, really, uh, costumes. It was a, a one-night reprise of the uh, the Lincoln Center hit from... Uh, what, 50, 87. 87. You two would know better. Um, And Howard McGillan and Patty reprised the roles, and Linda um, Hart uh, did as well. But they were the only three from from that, and uh, Bobby Longbottom staged it and choreographed it. And I I played Lord Evelyn, and I had such a hoot and a holler with with Patty. She just made me laugh so much, and she was so game for any silliness that, you know, came up. Um, that I, from then on, I thought I'd work with her in a heartbeat. You just made the comment that Arthur had said Rose and and Herbie have a great sex life, mm. and many people have commented on the strength of the relationship between them, and that's very evident on stage. Do you have any sense if that was something he was emphasizing more than he had in other productions, or something he wanted to look at new? Well. I- Arthur said he'd never done the play this way, and that uh, I think he seemed to be uh, concentrating most on making sure that the 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 all the elements that make it a wonderful play were in place, and so the emphasis on all scenes was what was really going on. I, I got the. Sense he has said before that sometimes when they would do, uh, and, and I'm assuming this is in the productions he directed as well, that the show would come to not a halt, but the numbers would appear and they would be a slight pause in the in the in the play. But he wanted it to be one cohesive unit, and I, I think his look at it was ultimately, um, uh, uh, especially the second our second rehearsal period after uh, you know was when we were moving to the St. James was to go deeper and darker. Well, I wanted to ask you, we had Laura Benanti as a guest a few weeks ago, and it's really the same question. How did the show change for you between the original summer run at City Center and then opening at the St. James? Well, uh, of course, now it's hard to separate uh, uh, memory from uh, um, reality. the thing I remember most about uh, City Center was how quick it was. We only did it, put it up in three weeks and only ran for not even three weeks, um, a few days of tech. And uh, uh, in, in those circumstances, you're more worried about if you're just going to remember what you have to do. Um, I, well, it was a great time. It was a big party on stage every night just because the audiences would go wild. And it was invariably packed to the rafters. Um uh so it seemed to me that the big difference was a, a more focused 
and um, deeper approach. Uh, one thing Arthur kept saying in rehearsals was, I really want you to take your time. Eventually things will speed up. But he didn't want any moments passed over. He really, you know, fully flesh out everything as much as possible uh, uh, and not give, any, you know, just uh, lip service to anything. So from that city center run last July, has Herbie changed? Has your interpretation changed at all? I, I would say the overall interpretation has not changed. I didn't... Uh, uh, it, it's it's simple. I hope it's much more detailed and, and uh, deeper, more relaxed. Uh, my... I, 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 there's so much more detail in the work with all the other actors that that seems to me the, the greatest change. And the show itself feels slightly different. So I, I, it's hard for me to quantify what's changed about Herbie. I, uh, it's not something I really think about. I really think about more what the task is ahead of me every every night and, of course, in every scene. And well, now that, now that you've gotten to know Herbie, <coughs> what is Herbie all about? What is, he, what, what is he like as a person, Herbie? Well, <clears throat> Herbie, as Arthur uh, pointed out in that initial conversation, it does desperately want a family. Uh, he's, I think, lived a very lonely life, both as an agent that he's, you know, admits that he was a terrible agent. He gave all his commission away and uh, <clears throat> had ulcers because he represented people who weren't terribly talented. And so he became a candy salesman. And so professionally, he's probably the happiest as a candy salesman. There's less stress and less grief in his life. People, I, you get the feeling that... Uh, that he's well liked uh, and is successful. He, you know, he says later in the train station, you know, I'll do twice as well as I did before, and that was pretty fair. Um, but he, uh, you know, he opts out for a life with uh, with Madame Rose. You know, almost uh, love or certainly uh, attraction at first sight. Uh, and I, I think he's, uh, I think he is. Uh, a, a, a very caring person, um, and he's—I think he's absolutely head over heels in love with with Rose. Even though he's certainly uh, well aware of of her uh, faults, I, I, I've heard people describe Herbie to me, saying, "Oh, he's you, you know." And, and I, I find this hard to believe, just because of the incredible actors who played him, um, and most of whom I know, and uh, you know, they're spectacularly talented uh, actors and uh, so it's hard sometimes he's described as you know really put upon and and there is that he, he isn't someone who revels in confrontation all the scenes in which Rose confronts someone's, uh, someone else he tends to backpedal a little bit and let her let her take it I think it's something he's not very comfortable with and therefore always slow to have confrontations with Rose herself um, <clears throat> but and I've even heard the part described as thankless, but it's it's a lot of fun. I was I had uh, a drink last night with uh, my friend Richard Poe, who was in uh, who was in uh, uh, Journey's End. He's in Crybaby now, and and he had played Herbie a long time ago. And when uh, w as we were finishing Journey's End, uh, he said, "Oh, you're gonna have a great time with Herbie. Herbie is a wonderful role, and uh, uh, you, you know you really get to be in there. Then the, you'll feel the audience on your side." Uh, and that's been true. That's that, that really has, uh, uh, you know, very much held true to form. 
Did you do any research into the real life gypsy, the real life Rose? I, I, I read the book. I did some uh -huh. googling. Uh, you know, I've read uh, books rather, uh, um, and did some research into burlesque, and uh, w which I find fascinating. You know, there's that line uh, when Cigar uh, uh, is called one of the one of the, uh, one of the uh, theater managers at the burlesque house they end up in Wichita says I, I, I'm short of talking woman and indeed that's what a woman who did scenes who had dialogue was called a talking woman it was all very much segregated as it's described in the, the play the strippers stripped the talking women played with comics it was considered a lowly position so as the, the play describes so yeah it's uh, I mean it, I, you know I'm not really old enough to have ever seen any real burlesque I mean you know I'm not someone who frequents strip clubs, so I suppose that's the last remnant of it. But uh, well, there is actually a resurgence in kind of it, new burlesque. I, yeah, I saw that. I saw that. What's the, what's the? There was a thing in in the Times Online. I saw. I just it seems there are clubs you can actually go into Time Out New York and now find burlesque oh. acts again that are, that are playing around town. So I don't know. You know, I think it was something that was eradicated from New York City when they wanted to clean things up, and it's it's slowly come back. Yes, Obviously, it was the, retro and right. And, wasn't it? Banned in the 40s, right? Yeah. I think during the war. Uh, well, the Minsky's was shut down. Yeah, uh, it was sort of a degenerate version of vaudeville that people said they had to really get rid of. So let's jump back to the start of uh, your career, Juilliard trained. Yes, I, um, I came to New York in uh, 1975 to go to Juilliard. I'd auditioned three times. This is the third time I finally got in. Second time I'd been waitlisted. And but. this is still in the John Hausman era? Yes, John Hausman's last year was my first year, okay. uh, and then in the school was taken over by Alan Schneider, and his his only three years were my last three. Um, I had worked originally at this little theater company in California called PCPA that Donovan Marley, who ran the Denver Center uh, up until a, a couple of years ago, uh, founded, and it was a wonderful uh, conservatory and rep company. And I was there three years, uh, three years before I went to Juilliard, and uh, I, I probably, I know I did more than thirty fully mounted productions in that three years. They'd have a summer rep where you, where you could do four or five shows in rep, uh, and then uh, a myriad of shows, musicals, classical theater, everything. Well, I jumped to Juilliard. Had you uh, gone to an undergraduate school? No, this was a, the the this conservatory is in a junior college, and I hadn't. Uh, I mean, I had I had college credits, but I, mm -hmm. I didn't really have. So you had there. the professional work, and then chose to go to Juilliard. What what made you decide to go to school then, if you'd been working? Well, I, I felt I really needed the training. I certainly wanted the technical training, the voice and speech and movement, uh, and also I, I just felt. Um, and I remember talking to Donovan, who was really my mentor, who said, you should train. It would be, that would be the best, you know, you're at a point where you have a certain amount of knowledge and now, you know, go in under, uh, into the pressure cooker, as it were. And, and, and that's fine. We had this wonderful teacher at Juilliard, Pierre Lefebvre, who taught mask work. And I remember talking to him. He said, why, why do we train? Why do we go to a conservatory or an acting school or take acting classes? He said, couldn't you learn all that in... Uh, it, it, just by working professionally? And the answer, of course, is yes, you can, but it takes you so much more time because you only learn certain things in in any individual production, but you go to school, you concentrate on that, and you compress that time, hopefully, into, uh, as in the case of Juilliard, four very long years. 
And at that point, did Juilliard's program include musicals, or was this really just dramatic training? No, my class did Beggar's Opera. They would do things with music. And but we, not Gypsy. Not, no, not Gypsy. No, not what you'd think of as a traditional uh, uh, musical comedy. The plays with music. We sang when I mean, we had singing lessons, and we took dance every day. Um, um, yes, I was thinking of this day. Uh, Roland Gagnon, who was, uh, who I think uh, Beverly Sills coached with, uh, for a while was uh, was a uh, uh, the voice teacher when I first got there, and then a guy named John West, a uh, mm. bass baritone. Who well, I, I mentioned in the opening that in 1978 at the Public Theater here in New York, you were in fact in Spring Awakening. You played the role of Melchior. Did that come out of Juilliard? They were one of the producers, were they? Oh well, yeah, no, it, it was. Uh, Alan Schneider knew Liviu Chule, who was head of, essentially head of the Romanian theater at that time. Obviously, still, uh, still in the days of the Iron Curtain, he had brought Leviu to the arena stage to do. I can't uh, it escapes me. Uh, a play that went very well, and then said, "Come, you should come to New York and and uh, uh, do a production at Juilliard." So they combined the third and the fourth years. I was in the third year um, to do. Uh, to do Spring Awakening, and it so happened that when Leviu came to audition, we were doing a production of Romeo and Juliet, and I was playing uh, Mercutio. So he got to see me work, and then and then I was uh, uh, cast as Melchior in this production. And it only ran four performances at Juilliard, but the Times reviewed it. Um, I don't remember the review, but I do remember the the subtitle was something like "Faultless Revival at at Juilliard." Joe Papp then called and picked it up for the summer. So we ran six weeks that summer at the public and then went to the Saratoga Festival. Mm-hmm. And that was essentially my New York debut. You, Howard had mentioned, he said, oh, you, how could you, ha- you graduated in 79, but you started working in 78, and, and that is why. Hmm. You did graduate, as you just said, I in did. 79, and started doing what many young actors do, so roundabout uh Regional theater. Um, what were what was the kind of work you were getting in that period? I mean, I got to see you in Philadelphia. Here I come at the Philadelphia Drama Guild in 1980. But was it really the itinerant life for the, for the first couple of years? Uh, uh, more than that, uh, I uh, one always longs to work in town. I lived obviously in the city and and uh, was always uh, happy to get any work in town. And the, my first play out of school was uh, a month in the country at the roundabout. So I got my equity card. The old, old, old roundabout. Down on they've 23rd Street. Yes. Places, yes. Yeah, they've, uh, before Todd Hames uh, took it over. Um, but it was fantastic. It was Phil Bosco, Farley Granger, uh, Amanda Plummer, Tammy Grimes was the lead. Uh, um, it was a fantastic opportunity. And uh, and then I actually, that it was successful enough to keep running. And I uh, uh, got a job in the BAM company uh, for the rest of the season, uh, and I was replaced by Kelsey Grammer. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I count seven different Roundabout productions. I may have missed a few, but you uh, had that quite a long association right. with Roundabout. Six of them on Broadway, and, and, and that one uh, a month in the country at, uh, in 1979, and a chance to work with Phil Bosco for the first time, but you've worked with him since. Yes, I, uh, the, the Twelve Angry Men. Twelve Angry Men. I, Phil, I absolutely adore, and uh, I had a blast working with him both times, and have you know remained friends with him through the years. 
in this itinerant period. Yes, I didn't really answer your question. No, it's okay, but there's certainly something interesting that many people may forget. Younger people who see you as as a consummate stage actor um, don't remember that uh, you got yourself onto a very popular sitcom only a couple of years (coughs) out of Juilliard. And that was One Day at a Time, which, which a lot of us saw in that period. I'm wondering how that affected your stage career because certainly you had several years where you were presumably out in LA and suddenly you were, you know, a young male lead on a on a hit comedy and did that did that send you in a different direction for a while? Uh not really. I um I having uh, started in a regional theater uh out at PCPA, I I really thought that that would be I would be doing what almost all my friends were doing, which was making the rounds of regional theaters, playing great parts and great pieces of all types and descriptions. Um, so I, I think I've always thought I would continue to do that. And in fact, in all of the uh, 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 hiatus time uh, in the, between the three seasons of One Day at a Time that I did, I did, I, I did, uh, let's see, I did Baroon, in Love's Labors, I did uh, Damis in Tartuffe. I did a new play by Louis Black, um, out at the now defunct uh, not, or, uh, the the Kenyon Festival at uh, Kenyon College in Gambier, Ohio, that uh, Paul Newman started. Hmm. Um, it was yeah his alma mater. Um, so I th- I always thought I would be doing the thing. I, I mean, there came times when I thought, you know, I could could be happy doing work in California. It certainly paid well and it that it was a it was a, a lot of fun but when I first got cast on the show I was I had I'd just been at the Guthrie for a season and uh, uh, I came back and auditioned for this and I remember when I got to California I had all these dreams of where I couldn't remember how to act I, I was on stage at the Guthrie and in this nightmare and I and people said boy boy what's what's wrong with you and I go I, I can't remember how to act it wasn't that I didn't remember the words <laughs> <laughs> so I think that was uh, uh, certainly a palpable fear. Well, at the end of the 80s, 1989, kind of a, a breakthrough role, breakthrough show for you at Playwrights Horizons off-Broadway, Wendy Wasserstein's The Heidi Chronicles, which later then transferred to Broadway. You went on to win the Tony Award for playing Peter Patron, the, the gay doctor in the show. Yeah. How did you get into that show, and what was that whole experience for you? Uh, I was I was down in Baltimore, which I've worked uh, at a lot. In fact, I think I was doing... Um, uh, 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 the importance of being earnest, uh, and I was working with uh, Byron Jennings, Carolyn McCormick, uh, Pippa Parathree, great, great company. And I got the call: Would I come audition for for this? So I took the train up, and uh, in fact, I didn't even get to audition for Dan Sullivan because he had he was called away to Seattle, where he still ran the rep. Um, and uh, I auditioned for Andre and Wendy. Andre Bishop. Yes. Mm-hmm. Sorry. And. <clears throat> and um, uh, it seemed to go very well, and uh, I, I think I, I think I started the rehearsals commuting back and forth for the first first few days till um, Ernst closed, and and uh, but it was a great time. It was uh, I had I had been in a miniseries with Joan Allen and knew her enough to say hello, but uh, it was so fantastic. It was a great cast, and uh, Dan did a great job, and. Uh, you know what wasn't to like. You know the show itself. It, it was the first time I think I'd 
it really was the first time in New York that I was in something that was a really a big hit that you know you couldn't we we could never get tickets off Broadway there were just weren't enough seats at playwrights um and then it ran you know almost about 2 years on Broadway and it was a bit of a cultural statement as well at the time because it was very much about an independent woman it was obviously a, a female playwright who right. at that point we were seeing very few of on Broadway Indeed. To be one of the guys in a production which was so much about female empowerment, right. were, was the attention all on the women and, and you were there to support it? Or or was it still, you know, just the experience of being in a great show? Uh, I, you know, um, certainly what people asked questions about most were the 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 themes of the play that concern, you know, feminism certainly was a topic and, you know, uh, um, and the Heidi characters, I don't know, I don't know if I if I would say disillusionment with that that, but uh, um, uh, but that and, and and it was also the really the the at the beginning of real awareness about the AIDS crisis, and because my uh, my character was a um, pediatric AIDS specialist, that came up, and, and quite honestly, I remember more about that uh, than than so much the the question of whether or not you know we were what's sucking hind tit playing the guys in a show about uh, you know about feminism hmm. you've been doing all of these plays the next major piece that that you got so much attention for was she loves me now had new york casting people been looking at you for musicals had you been trying to do musicals i i think i auditioned for badly for something i can't remember uh what happened was uh, the very first musical i ever did out in california was she loves me uh, i played the bus boy when you read pcpa yes donovan marley directed it <laughs> um a guy named vance jeffries played george and he was he was fantastic um uh so i knew the piece about 10 years after that um my great friend stan boyovatsky who was running baltimore center stage uh called me and said boy do you sing and i went well you know <laughs> sort of and he said do you know she loves me and i said actually i do know she loves me he goes you think you could you think you could manage george and i went i don't know you know i hadn't i said well let me i was in i was in california uh I think working on one day at a time. I can't remember. Uh, I uh, so I went and found a singing teacher, um, David Romano, who coaches uh, uh, Josh Gro Josh Groban. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, great fellow. Helped me work on the music. So I called Stan Bang and said, well, "Well, if you can live with me, I, I hopefully can." <laughs> so I went to Baltimore, did it, and it was a great cast. Diane Frenton Tony, who took over for Judy Kuhn in the in the Broadway production, uh, Stephen Bogardus, um, and you know, a great. Uh, I'm leaving people out, and just because my brain is a sieve. But but uh, uh, so I got to play it once before. It was Pat, that was production was cast by Pat McCorkle, who then ten years later cast. The roundabout production. Huh. So that was how I got seen. So part. you came in knowing the part. Yeah. Yes. Uh, 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 I, and I, I, I'm such a weenie about singing auditions. I find them the most naked, and not in a good way. <laughs> you mm -hmm. know. Um, 
I'm terribly self-conscious uh, about them, and I'm I'm not very good at them. I, I feel like if I can work on a song as an in the context of a scene, then that self-consciousness goes away, and I you know I don't don't think about it. But. So you wouldn't consider yourself a singer, but an actor who has to sing on occasion. Yes, uh, with a gun to his head, I, you know, <laughs> I, I will do this. But so, and that's why things like cabaret and concerts and uh, benefits and galas where you go out and just sing by yourself are just terribly uncomfortable for me. But doing it in character makes a difference. Oh, yeah. Well, just having the context of a, a scene. And, uh, you know, if I were more talented, I could hopefully do that, you know, in a solo situation. But uh, sorry. She Loves Me always seems like a show that every time it's done, people act as if it's been rediscovered yes, that's for true. the first time. So... You, by the time you were doing it for the roundabout, it was your third. She loves me. It was my third. She loves me. I knew what a great piece. I knew what a great piece it was from the first time I did it. Uh, it, it the songs are so beautifully integrated into the play, um, and uh, and and that's the great fun of it. That's why I I feel like all but a couple of the numbers don't really work out of context because they are scenes. The the music starts, the scene continues in, in a in a more heightened way. Granted, but but uh, it, they're all scenes, and that, I thought uh, by the time we got to uh, the Broadway production, I thought that the places that were always the hardest to be successful in, like the Christmas shopping, um, that uh, David Loud and uh, Robbie Marshall and Scott Ellis really found a way to to make those. That the insanity of that really part of the part of the play as well. Well, it's interesting, kind of paralleling what you said about being an actor who sings and being comfortable doing it in the character. Sheldon <coughs> Harnick, when he was on this program, mm -hmm. who wrote the lyrics, yeah, I guess loves so. me, I know very well. uh, talked about writing lyrics like he loves her so much that his teeth ache. Not the kind of thing that you would normally write as Moon June Spoon. But he said, but it worked for the character. It was the type of thing that the character would say. So it kind of parallels what you're saying about being the character and delivering the lines from those songs. Well, I, I think that's true. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I think that's absolutely true of uh, 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 Stephen Sondheim's lyrics for Gypsy, for example, that it's... Uh, I, I, I hear a lot of it. I don't... I have very little to sing. Uh... But I hear it every night, and I'm I'm always amazed at how much they are parts of a scene. Well, they're 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 both lyric writers who write for the character, not necessarily for the rhyme for the song, but for what the character needs to say. Yes, and I think that's why you know that they don't become big you know hits on the popular radio the way that uh, uh, Irving Berlin and Rodgers and Hammerstein songs mm -hmm. do. Well, She Loves Me was done by Roundabout. Then Roundabout did Company. You were in that. You played the role of Robert. Yes. And uh, that was another Roundabout experience for you. What was, again, a Sondheim lyric. Oh, so, it's a fantastic piece. Uh, I got very sick uh, right as we were going into tech and missed. A, in fact, I think Jimmy Clow, my fantastic uh, standby, did one more performance in the run than I did. Mm. I couldn't get diagnosed. It was a. It was. I. It was the nadir of my professional experience. Were well, you having vocal problems? I did. They couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. I, you know, it, it, it turned out to be reflux. Um, acid uh, acid reflux. A, uh, yes, but just sort of. Uh, what was it? I finally had what's called a cineosophagram, kind of the uh, the modern equivalent of the old fluoroscope. You drank barium. They put you on a table and have a X-ray video camera that watches the 
the barium go down and watches it come right back up. Hmm. So, yeah, I think the diagnosis was massive spontaneous reflux. So it basically burned uh, two big spots on the bottom of my vocal cords. So, it, But once I was finally diagnosed, it took forever because it masks itself as all kinds of things like pulmonary disease. And um, But once I was diagnosed, then I was able to... Uh, took drugs and changed my diet radically and uh, and then I was able to finish the run and uh, and do the recording. I remember that this was chronicled in the press. It oh was, god, it was every, and every day. It was how so you, embarrassing and How do you hang in there when you're you're experiencing obviously uh, a serious condition and you've got people saying will he won't he can he can't he? How do you get through that? Well, as as best you can. I, I, it uh, it, it was it was so depressing and so frustrating. It, it, it frustrating in the sense that there's just really nothing you can do but wait, wait to heal up, wait to get better. If there, you know, and and in uh, uh, a part like uh, Bobby, uh, which sat really high for me any, anyway, even though they you know they adjusted the keys, it's just very rangy and very difficult. And and uh, uh, so every day, you know, you get up in the morning and go, oh God, is it there? And then I didn't go out much, but when I did, people go, oh, how's your voice? Are you okay? You know, how's it coming? You think you'll be back in soon. Uh, it would seem to be in the papers uh, every day. Um, and I think that's why, you know, I, I remember when uh, um, Donna Murphy and I think Bernadette Peters, who have gotten hell about uh, in the press about missing shows, it's like they, I don't think they have – I don't think the press has really any idea how difficult it is to do one of those giant parts eight times a week. And so I, I you know, I, I think it's um, – I, I feel like uh, it isn't a very realistic view to to expect someone to just be there night in, night out, especially if when it, what happens is you go and you start previews. You're rehearsing all day, so singing all day. Then you're doing the show eight times a week. And by the time you open, your voice is usually so tired that you get sick or something, you get a cold, get laryngitis, and then – then you're behind the eight ball and catching up is really difficult. And the only thing you can do is miss until you get better. It's kind of, maybe it's kind of coincidental that you and Patti LuPone and Laura Benanti, currently starring all three of you in Gypsy, Patti, when she was in Evita, burst a blood vessel in her neck. Yeah. Laura had a famous pratfall where she literally Heard broke, her broke her neck. Bro- broken neck, yeah, yeah. yeah. And you had your problems. It, it's, I guess it goes to show how difficult it can be performing eight shows a week. You know, we sit in the audience thinking, ah, just get up there for two hours, that's it, you know. Right. But obviously it's a lot more grueling than that. Well, I think if if you, uh, uh, Patty has such a big load in this vocally, she's only missed one show and that came from a bad, uh, uh, either food poisoning or a stomach virus and uh, and she couldn't stand up. Um, Laura got pneumonia and missed a few shows um, and she's fine now. But it's, yeah, it's, it's really difficult and the your vocal cords in particular are two tiny little folds of flesh in your throat you can't see them and uh, uh, you know if they're on the blink there's not too much can be done i don't think most people know how how uh, difficult and strenuous it is let's flip from infirmity back to creativity <laughs> okay when you did company i <clears throat> someone will probably correct me but uh, i recall that might have been the first broadway revival i think of it the was show. yeah it was and looking at that material, this was the mid-90s, but you're mm-hmm. looking at the early 70s. Yeah. Was there any 
rethinking of the material at that time, or was it really trying to capture the show exactly as it was? Well, we, I, I there had been some talk. I, I think I think this is uh, it's what I remember uh, that we were going to set it in the seventies and try to keep those values, but we ultimately didn't. There was sort of a suggestion of the seventies, but the clothes we were that we wore were contemporary. Um, my first question when I got cast was, is Bobby gay? Which is the, que- you know, most people assume he is. There's nothing in the text about it. Uh, at least there wasn't then. I think right as we were finishing our production, the production in London that Sam Mendes did, where they actually rewrote little bits to imply that Bobby was at least bisexual. Uh, but that was my first question was, is Bobby gay? And every, all the, the authors said no. Um, I don't know. I think maybe there, there's been some rethinking of that. It's, it, it, it's. Um, I, I understand it, and I, and I think that the anthematic quality of of being alive, meaning I I become myself, I come out, I admit who I am, can easily be taken to you know, or you can certainly imply that that that's about coming out. And that's a show where there was material cut from the original production that got restored for yours, as I recall. Well, we did. Case? I think everyone's pretty much done it subsequently. Uh, uh, one of the Trunk songs, um, Marry Me a Little. Uh, there, You know, I'm surprised no one's ever put together musically. There, there, it seems like there are four or five songs. There's another one, too, that I don't remember the name of. And they all have words affect to the effect of uh, someone, somebody, uh, uh, someone, you know, someone is waiting, waiting, which is in the show and has always been. But those words keep coming up in these songs. And and I I think, marry me a little, and there's one other that I don't remember the name of. After Company, your next uh, roundabout production was Cabaret, where you went in as a replacement. That's right. I replaced uh, John Benjamin Hickey. Was a, what, what was that fine. experience for you? You didn't originate the role. You, you replaced somebody in an existing show that was already in production. It, 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 it was very hard. Um, uh, I had taken some time off. My daughter had just been born. Um, and I, had, I was in the workshop at Lincoln Center of Contact, or the second half, which became the second half, the part that I was in. Um, as we were presenting it, I was offered uh, uh, Cliff in, uh, to replace uh, John Hickey, and, um, so which, I, I, which I did. And uh, I went in with Mary McCormick, who was replacing Jennifer Jason Lee, who had replaced Natasha Richardson. Um, and we had only, we had, oh, I think, gosh, eight or ten days of rehearsal couple of put-ins and then and then we were out and running and it was uh, uh, again I didn't have any I really had almost nothing to sing and I was grateful for that but it's a very difficult role um, uh, and uh, it, it really took me quite a while to uh, uh, to find myself it's the first time I never had a rehearsal going in you know rehearsing with a stage manager and an assistant director um, and I assume you're re- rehearsing not with the cast. No, not, no, not you're rehearsing stage. with stage managers, yeah. and you know who's playing all the the other parts. Mary and I got to do our little bits together, um, but it 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 was uh, it was hard. It was really you know catch up football. I thought. I'm curious. You just said it's a difficult part. Obviously, the process of of putting in that way is difficult. But what about about a Cliff? Did you find so difficult? Well, everyone says you know he's the I am I am a camera. Uh, and so he tends to be uh, sometimes an observer in the scenes, and the, the 
the hard, difficult part is making him active, making him a participant in the scenes as opposed to just the observer. He eventually does become that. But there's there are... I've always felt that there are things assumed that aren't necessarily dramatized, and you have to make some, you know, big and strong choices about about what those uh, things are. Hmm. Well, from the not totally pleasant experience in of being in uh, cabaret, oh, but, but I would like to say is that the but the people I worked with. I mean, I got to work with uh, uh, much of the original cast: uh, Alan Cumming and uh, uh, Dennis O'Hare and Michelle Pauk. Uh, um, um, uh, Blair Brown had replaced Mary Louise Wilson, but with Blair and I know I'm leaving someone out. Uh, 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 and I got to work with Mary McCormick and then later Susan Egan. I, I, it ultimately was a great time. I, I mean, it was a fantastic production and, and I really enjoyed it. It was just tough going, getting up to speed. Getting up to speed, yeah. yeah I just never, I, always, I felt I was a little too old for it, quite frankly. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But you, you just mentioned that you were already workshopping, already creating contact, where you did create the role of Michael Wiley and then ultimately went on to do that on Broadway at Lincoln Center Theater. So that Again, back into a musical where you were originating. Well, that must have been a much more pleasant experience in that sense. Well, it certainly was. It had been such an organic uh, uh, and improvisational rehearsal period uh, of finding it. It was kind of built on us. And Susan Stroman and uh, uh, John Weidman were so fantastic about taking our input, and and uh, we would be goofing off doing something and. Lo and behold, they were watching, and they would say, "No, the thing you were doing yesterday. You mean that thing where we did X, Y, or Z?" Said, yeah, that's 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 going to go here, and you're going to do it like this. So uh, it, it gave us, uh, I think, the entire company uh, a sense of ownership that you don't often, you know, get in something that's uh, especially say in a revival. Well, I'm wondering how much was on the page when you started that first workshop, or what did you think you were coming in to work on? Well. I mean that that was a uh, the the script that we were given was essentially uh, I think it was about nineteen or twenty pages. It was ostensibly an outline. It described the action. Uh, there were I don't know five or six pages scattered throughout uh, of dialogue. Uh, but were you to have were you to read that outline and have seen what the day it closed? It was it was virtually exactly a description of what uh-huh. we did. So so I, I thought that was quite amazing that uh, Susan and, and Stroh and and, uh, and John were able to to not only, you know, bring this to life, but to actually have it follow the form that they intended. Almost I don't think there was really anything cut. There was some there was some there was some uh 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 Dance sections that we rehearsed for a while that never quite made it that never that never uh, made it in and things were you know little bits were clipped in here but it was almost all choreography stuff they planned and then changed their mind about and replaced but it was remarkable in that sense I would give people the sentence read that and it's what we did hmm. I mean a new musical I mean I've done only a few workshops of new or new plays and if you know what you start with and what you end up with are usually you know, different. Well, it's often a, often a leap of faith when you get into those oh. where it, where it starts and where it ends. A- absolutely, and 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 if even if things aren't rewritten, they're rearranged, usually dramatically. 
Hmm. When, when Andre Bishop was on this program, uh, he talked about letting Susan Stroman go to the basement of Lincoln Center with a bunch <laughs> of folks, yourself included, yes. and just play for like eight weeks creating the show. We, we did, I have to say, and uh, Andre Bishop and Bernie Gersten are so, uh, so trusting, and uh, it's why it makes it such a great place to work, because they really cut you loose. They come down and look every now and then, but it's, they, you know, they're, you don't ever get the sense that they're... Uh, you know, managing things in any way. Well, Contact was a show that was very much dependent upon dance, and you're not a dancer. N- n- <laughs> no, I, I, I can honestly say I am not. I, I had a lot of, you know, I took dance every day at, in drama school, uh-huh. um, uh, and I'd been in, you know, a number of musicals where I had to do dance steps, but obviously would have never been in, uh, a, a, a dancer. But the character was someone who didn't know how to dance, who mm-hmm. tries to dance, and that mm-hmm. became the Im- important uh, issue. And uh, In fact, when I was offered the workshop, Susan Stroman was in London, I think, filming the uh, the Oklahoma that they did it, that later was done here, and they uh, the one uh, did it with Hugh Jackman. Mm-hmm. So they were in the midst of taping that, uh, and I finally we, I caught her in, at her hotel. It was, you know, the middle of the night, I think, uh, and I I truly thought she was thinking of someone else. I thought maybe because uh, I, I, I've often had people come up, oh, I loved you in in uh, Crazy for You, and I go, no, that, that's Harry Groner. <laughs> Harry Groner, who I worked with at PCPA in California, uh-huh. is an old old friend. Um, so I just thought, well, maybe there's some confusion, and, but there wasn't. She said, no, no, we're looking for a, a, an actor who can move, and I said, well, I, you know, I think I said something stupid, and uh, she laughed, and we, you know, went to work. Unfortunately, you can sing, and you are the only person who actually sang a song in the show. Everything else was recorded music, pre-recorded music. Well, no, I actually didn't sing anything in the you didn't. show. No, uh, I, I did sing something for the, uh, the... Oh, for the CD. For the CD. Uh, uh, the the show, the my part of the show, uh, which was actually called Contact, opened with Dean Martin's recording of uh, You're Nobody Till Somebody Loves You. Uh, For some reason, the Dean Martin estate wanted a fortune to put it on the cast album, so it just was too costly. And so they came to me and asked me if I would uh, record it and that they put it on the cast album. Ah. We seem to be going back and forth between (laughs) shows from Andre Bishop and shows from Todd Hames. Well, I'm a child of the institutional theater. (laughs) So the next uh, Broadway show was uh, Twelve Angry Men. Uh, Certainly a change of pace from the Broadway musicals that you'd been doing up until then. Going into Twelve Angry Men is a show, a story, let's say, because people know the film and the TV version. I was wondering about just how it was approached when you take this this material that so many people know uh, from so many different versions and, and how do you take what now is certainly a period piece that was once a contemporary piece and, and approach it in, in this day and age? Well, I, I think a, a play is a play. The, the great advantage that we had was that uh, uh, Harold Pinter and I think in the mid-90s had put had gone back to the uh, uh, the original teleplay and screenplay um, and put that version on stage in London. I think it did very well. And that was the version that Scott knew uh, and wisely stuck with, took out the intermission that had been added in, in uh, the, all the community theater productions, which was a completely different adaptation. 
um, uh, so we did it without intermission. And and uh, and there again, the kind of improvisational nature of the rehearsal period. Scott Ellis cast all these, you know, great like me journeyman actors. Not great like me, but like me, journeyman. <laughs> <laughs> we'll say it. It's well, okay. uh, no, I, that's, that's not a word that is attached to my name. But, but, uh, uh, but these this just great bunch of guys, and we had from the get go just a blast. Uh, we uh, uh, he let us do a lot of overlapping. He, he staged it as it would look in a real New York City jury room, and half of us had our back to the to the house when we started and and uh, it was a very masterful piece of choreography and uh, and teamwork it's great uh, as much fun as I've ever had uh, in an ensemble you well, just used the word improvisational and I'm wondering what the improvisation was in those well, rehearsals well, well what we did was the uh, instead of worrying so much about my turn your turn in terms of talking the text, if you look at it, is bits and pieces of often several conversations going on at one time. Um, so the main story that you should be hearing, of course, is that is the what's on the text. But what we were allowed to do was to improvise all the dialogue and life that went around it to keep it from being not only static but to feel as if you did have, you know, 12 individuals uh, having seen the movie which is brilliant and God knows uh, Henry Fonda is uh, amazing in it but the editing so controls what you're looking at as opposed to the play where you could watch any story that you chose to and it was going on for the full 90 minutes well, you played juror number eight, who mm-hmm. is the the one that first has reasonable doubt as to whether or not the, right. the the young man did did murder somebody, and you're reunited on stage with Phil Bosco, who played yeah. juror number three, who is the reluctant one who just didn't want to oh, change his and his Phil viewpoint. was just uh, amazing in the show. So it, it ultimately came down to kind of a duel between you and, and Phil. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. It's uh, uh, yeah, it was a. Uh, uh, as much fun a conflict as I've ever had. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess most people don't realize that this was the first time it was ever on Broadway, that it had been a television play written by Reginald Rose that was made into a movie. Your character was played by Henry Henry Fonda Fonda. in the movie, but this is the first time it was ever done on Broadway. Why do you think it took so long? Because the movie looked like it could have been from a Broadway show. I always thought it was. Uh, One set uh, um, and... uh, 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 and be, be, uh, having seen the movie, that's what I assumed. That it, it and it's, it's had a seemed like a play put on on film a little bit, um, but no, it was this. It was a sixty minute teleplay to start with. I think uh, he'd ri- originally written ninety minutes. It was trimmed down, and then when Henry Fonda bought the rights for it, it was expanded into the to the thing. But I think the reason it was never done on Broadway was because it kind of been co opted into this civics lesson that everyone. In his brother, uh, uh, if you're if you're British and a male, you probably had to do a production at some point uh, for history class of Journey's End. If you're an American, it's it's not unlikely that you would have at least seen Twelve Angry Men, if not, you know, done a reading or a production of it. So well, you've just done a segue for us to Journey's End. I do. I was so happy Twelve to Angry do so. Men ingrained in the American consciousness. Journey's End. By and large, not known to American audiences. No, I read it when I was in high school, uh, hmm. when I, the year that I decided that I wanted to act and uh, uh, just loved it. So when the opportunity to audition for it came around, I jumped at it. The approach to that production, 
it was dark, it was closed down, it was hushed. I'm wondering how that evolved in rehearsal because it was the opposite of showy. Uh, yes, uh, you know, it was obviously it was uh, 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 the production had been done in London. Uh, this particular production uh, had been done in London and moved several times. It had a, it had a long uh, uh, and very successful life there. Um, then it was decided to come here, and we had a, a, a few Brits in the cast, but it was largely American. Uh, but same director, same designers, and they were hell-bent for authenticity. Hmm. Um, and uh, David Grindley, the director, had a very, very strong notion about pretty much how everything played and where the values um, uh, were in any and every single moment. Well, kind of in a way similar to Twelve Angry Men, a bunch of guys literally locked into a jury room. Here yeah. you have a bunch of guys in a in a bunker in World War One. And, and there again, the it, it was the such great fun uh, being in in that kind of ensemble. I mean, I, to me, that's the most fun of all is, is ensemble. Well, t- these two shows, both all male cast, is there a different dynamic than as an actor working Absolutely. with just a bunch of guys? <laughs> it's, it's called <laughs> testosterone. It's called testosterone, and it's kind of a... Uh, 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 the, the, the atmosphere backstage for, for uh, uh, 12 Angry Men and for Journey's End were n- dissimilar in as much as the material kind of required. Twelve Angry Men was a locker room. Um, uh, uh, Journey's End was really all about camaraderie, and uh, uh, we often went out for uh, a drink afterwards. The characters drank continually in the show. Maybe that was some suggestion there, but but uh, uh, both were uh, both casts were incredibly close, and we still still get together. Well, then from a bunch of guys in a, in a bunker in, 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 uh, in the war back to a couple of guys in a, in a big mansion in London with a young lady who was having uh, dialect uh, troubles, who was not able to speak uh, the king's or the queen's English. Tell us about getting to Pygmalion at, at Roundabout. Well, I was in uh, – it was actually, uh, at, again, at the end of, uh, of uh, the run of Journey's End when D- David Grindley came and said, how would you like to play Pickering opposite uh, – uh, Jefferson Mays's uh, Higgins and Jefferson had been in during well, the was in, was, yeah played Mason the chief cook and bottle washer uh, uh, so it was that part of it uh, Eliza wasn't cast yet um, and I thought about a Hemden Hawd and I thought I don't know if I want to play another Englishman at in the in uh, you know circa First World War and uh, and that was the version we were doing was the 1912 version um, so. But I thought about it and thought about it, and it seemed like such a good time. I'd had such a great time with uh, David Grindley, and uh, uh, the, it was the same designers, uh, and Jefferson, whom I absolutely adore. Uh, so I uh, eventually said yes, and it, you know, I was lucky that it dovetailed in between Gypsy and... Uh, I have to ask, yes. when you're in Pygmalion... Do you find yourself looking for the songs from My Fair Lady? <laughs> I, I didn't. I I had been in the when I was in, out in California as a kid. I had been in a production of uh, of a very good production of My Fair Lady, and uh, uh, but this play is uh, the version that we did is so different. Uh, yes, I mean it's pretty hard not to you know when I hear it off stage because I wasn't in the scene. I said when um, he doesn't say. I've I've grown accustomed, and everyone would say to your face, but it's to your voice in the play. Um, but other than that, 
I, I no, I didn't. Uh, <laughs> however, I, I, the, Jefferson Mays told me he said when the uh, when the musical was first done, there was an outcry saying, "What have you done to this great play?" And then when we did <laughs> this original version of the play, people said, "Where's the musical?" <laughs> People expected to hear the yeah, songs. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's been a very busy last 12 months for you then, between yeah, Journey's End, Pygmalion, and now Gypsy, playing eight times a week at the St. James Theater. Boyd, thanks so much for being with us today oh, on Downstage Center. My pleasure, John. Thanks, Joe Howard. Thanks, Boyd. For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.